Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, I'm joined by Darrell Bouchard of Redmond, Inc. Redmond, Inc. has many different business ventures, but we focus on their real salt products. Their real salt is mined from an ancient seabed in Redmond, Utah, which contains 60-plus trace minerals and has been protected from man-made pollution. We also discuss the principles and philosophy behind Redmond, Inc. and what they mean when they say they're all about elevating the human experience for their employees, their customers, and also their community at large. Daryl is very knowledgeable about salt, and we talk about the history of salt, why it's important in the human diet, and why individuals who are on the vegan, vegetarian, paleo, keto, or carnivore diet can benefit from using a high-quality ancient sea salt. I myself choose to take Kratom to help with my health and well-being, and there's only one brand that I trust, and that's naturalorganics.com. That's naturalorganics with an X.com. You can use promo code chronicallyhuman20 at checkout to get 20% off your next order. Thank you for listening today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Thank you, Daryl, for being on the show today. It's great to be here. I sure appreciate uh, having you, or you having me on today. Yeah, definitely, man. I found you guys by uh, listening to Dr. Sean Baker's podcast. I believe it's called The Human Potential Outliers. And he was talking about realsalt.com. And I thought, well, I thought I knew about salt, but I'd never heard about what you guys were up to. And the more I dug into the company uh, Redmond, the more I dug into what you guys were all about, the, the more I wanted to speak to you guys to get the word out, not only about your product line, which I think is fantastic, but also about the philosophy behind the business and the story about how you guys got started. Now, how did you personally get started with the company? That's a great question. So um, actually, my grandpa and his brother had a farm back in the 1950s. And in World War II, my my grandpa was actually a riveter and worked as a business manager for McDonnell Douglas in California. And his brother was a miner up at Kennecott, which is the large copper mine here in Utah. So after the war ended, they came back, um, came back to rural Utah, which is where they were raised, and wanted to give a go at Grandpa's farm. And so they started farming there. And you know, the farm was wasn't doing too well. There was a drought here in Utah in the 1950s, late 1950s, and there was an outcropping of salt north and south of their farm that the Native Americans had harvested long before the pioneers, you know, came into the southern Utah area or central Utah area. And so they knew there was salt under their farm. And because the farm wasn't doing that well and because there was salt north and south of their farm, they thought, you know what, let's drill down and see if we have salt under us. And so they took a stainless or took a, like a piece of rebar and pounded it down through the field to see where the salt came closest to the surface. And so they bought a bulldozer and bulldozed the alfalfa and the, the barley and the corn out of the way. And lo and behold, about 30 feet from the surface was this ancient sea salt that was laid down and trapped under their farm eons ago. And so they started selling salt to local farmers. And the, that's kind of how it got started. And originally, 
you know, it's fun that you heard about us through the food salt side. Originally, the salt was sold mostly for agricultural use um, for local farmers. All animals need salt to survive. And so they took these salt chunks from this ancient seabed. And the salt has a kind of a rose quartz color. It's kind of a, a red color because there were other minerals that were trapped in with this ancient seabed which really give it a sweeter flavor. And so the farmers immediately fell in love with it because the cows and the horses fell in love with it. And so my family would use it as food salt, but it wasn't the primary focus. And then in the 1970s, a nutritionist uh, from New York came through, I think, visiting the Grand Canyon and stopped in to see us on the way through. We didn't think anything of it, but a few months later, we started getting phone calls from back east with people saying, hey, we would like to buy your salt. And we said, great, is this for um, your cows or is this for your roads to keep the roads safe because it you know, melts snow off the roads? And they said, no, this is actually the food salt. And we said, well, we don't currently sell it for that reason. And they said, oh, well, there was this article that was written by this nutritionist that says the salt here in Utah from this ancient seabed is the healthiest, tastiest salt he's ever found and we want to buy it. And so we thought, well, we better put it in a shaker and sell it for food. And we sat around and said, what do we call this? You know, it's not processed salt. It's not, you know, sea salt from an current ocean. It's not half salt or near salt or new salt. Or It's just real salt, the way nature created it. And the name stuck. And so, you know, now I have a pouch here. You know, that's kind of the, the brand. Um, it's stuck. You know, the, the design has changed, you know, since the 1970s. Um, 1980s, but uh, but it's just real salt, and so we leave it the way nature intended. We don't take anything out. We don't put anything back into it. So because of that, a lot of chefs love it. You know, a lot of um, you know nutritionists love it because instead of having you know a lot of your salts today, if you look at the ingredient panel, we'll have things like yellow prussiated soda and sodium silicon dioxide, all of these ingredients and additives that we just don't feel like you need so we leave all of that out and leave the salt the way nature created it which gives it a sweeter flavor with some other minerals that offset the sodium um, and so that's that's the kind of the reader's digest version of at least the product that you are aware of um, which is real salt and now you can find real salt at most of your health food stores across the country you can find it in some grocery stores that's getting more and more in grocery of course online Amazon places like that so Anyway, that's I, that was a long introduction, but that's kind of the uh, the start of at least the product that, that you were uh, were introduced to, which was real salt. Well, that's fantastic. That's why we uh, that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast was to meet the people behind the products and to meet and to understand the philosophy behind why people are doing what they're doing. And I think that there's a huge movement right now for Eat Local. So I think it's important that people uh, also know not only where their food comes from, but also who is mining their salt. Because when I was growing up, you know, we had table salt and kosher salt. That was about it. You know, and then we got into sea salt. And then Himalayan salt has really been, I think, the biggest introduction of salt in the American diet as far as something new. Uh, what is the difference between what you guys are doing and what Himalayan sea salt, which I'm sorry, Himalayan salt, which I think it should be more accurately named Pakistani salt because it, the major mine is owned by the Pakistani government. I didn't know that until recently. And the people over there are mining by hand and in some actually really horrible conditions I wasn't aware of. 
Yeah, so you, you touched on a couple of really uh, important points that are confusing to many consumers. And the first is that even the term sea salt, you know, if I go and give a presentation to a group of nutritionists and I ask, you know, by a raise of hands, um, who has heard sea salt is better? And almost everybody is going to raise their hand right. when, in fact, if we started looking at labels on salt, I can show you that there are you know, sea salts that are more toxic and have more additives than maybe the table salt that you grew up in the canister growing, home, you know, growing up. Um, and that's because all salt can be defined as sea salt, as sea salt, because it comes from a seabed at some point. Mm. And so it might come from the San Francisco Bay, which unfortunately is not the cleanest body of salt water. It could come from the Gulf of Mexico, which again, you know, with things like BP and Exxon Valdez, our oceans, unfortunately, are not what they used to be. And now we have the addition of things like microbeads and plastics and pharmaceuticals that people are dumping into the water supplies. And so sea salt, you know, whether it comes from a current ocean like the San Francisco Bay, it could come from a dead sea like the Dead Sea in Israel or the Great Salt Lake here in Utah, or it can come from an ancient seabed like the seabed that's trapped here um, in Utah or the dead or ancient seabed that comes out of the Himalaya, you know, Pakistan region. So first thing I would tell people, if you're looking for a healthy salt, just forget looking for sea salt because it may or may not be a, a clean product. And so the better thing to do is to look at the back of the ingredient panel and ask yourself three questions. And these are the same three questions I would ask if you're you know, buying some kale or some peas at the farmer's market or some eggs or you're buying salt. And the first one is know the source, you know, know where it's coming from. Is it coming from a current ocean? Is it coming from the Dead Sea? Is it coming from, you know, the, the coast of Japan, which unfortunately, again, has some challenges? Um, who is producing it is another really good question, because with salt, particularly, almost all salt goes through a series of transactions where you buy a shaker of salt and you have no idea where that salt came from. You know, it, did it come from an ocean? Did it come from the States? Did it come from the Mediterranean? Did it come from the you know, South Pacific? Um, and so knowing who's producing it is really important. Um, and be, because then it's possible to find out the third question, which is what are they doing to it? Mm. Are you taking anything out? Are you putting anything back in? How are you processing it? And whether you're buying local eggs or, you know, salt, I think those are really important questions because if you know the source, you know where it's coming from, you know who's um, you know, handling it or what they're doing to it, and if they're taking something out or putting something in, you will end up with a really good product. And with salt, that's particularly difficult um, because of this, the number of hands it changes through. Now, you mentioned Himalayan, and I think, generally speaking, that's a fairly good brand at you know, 50,000-foot level mm -hmm. because it's coming from an ancient seabed. You know, an ancient seabed you know, was laid down during the Jurassic era, which geologists would put in the 150 to 250 million year ago category. Now, I wasn't alive back then to confirm the actual date, right. but it was a long time ago, certainly long before we had acid rain, you know, nuclear waste, before we had microbeads and plastics and some of the things in our current oceans. Um, and then the second thing you mentioned is, you know, it is the, there's there's dozens, and I don't know the exact number, but there's many mines in Pakistan that produce the Himalayan salt and dump it out to the coast. When it comes over it, if it ends up in a big box store or your local grocery retailer under a brand of pink salt, it's virtually impossible to know where that salt came from. 
you know, was it from this deposit or this mine? And and I've um, interacted with many of the Himalayan salt producers, and and some of them say, you know, the different mines do it differently, which mm -hmm. again makes total sense. Sure. But traceability does become a bit of a factor, um, which is again one of the reasons people prefer real salt because it's from the same deposit, from the same place every time um, from this seabed in Utah. Now, the other factor that I personally think is important is food miles. Um, you know, if I can find a local producer of any food that I'm going to eat, and it's down the street from me or even across town or across the state or even within the same country, you know, there's a lot less food miles that are going in into that. Um, now, I'm all for, you know, economic development in all sure. parts of the world, but I we, think if you yep, can definitely. source local, um, not only do you have the traceability, but then you also have fewer food miles as far as transportation costs and and stuff. So if I lived in Pakistan, I think there's no reason to import our product all the way over into Pakistan mm -hmm. because they have a really good product there. As long as you ask those three questions, what are the, what's the producer doing? Are they using explosives to extract it? Are they contaminating it anyway? Are they using fair labor practices? If you ask those questions and you're local, boy, there's probably some really good salt there. And in fact, Another favorite salt I have is from Bolivia. Hmm. Bolivia has a great natural pink salt from an ancient seabed. So if any of your listeners ever make it down to Bolivia, you know, stop in and get some great local salt there. They do it right. They harvest it pretty much the same as we do. Um, and it's a great product. And so I am not, you know, obviously I'm biased. I think real salt's amazing. And I think it's the best salt that everybody should have. Right. Um, and if you taste real salt side by side with Himalayan, they're going to be fairly close. Now, there are some slight differences, not in the mineral content, but in the ratios of those minerals. And so it can change the flavor. Uh, some notice there's a little bit sharper flavor with the Himalayan and the real salt side by side usually is a little sweeter, mm -hmm. but it's generally fairly similar. And there's also some good quality salts that come from around the world, from the Mediterranean, from Hawaii, and they all have some uniqueness. There's a Bali salt that uh, is a beautiful salt. Uh, it's all, sometimes it's called Bali salt or Cypress salt. Um, it's a fun little pyramid snowflake that's great on chocolates. But for your everyday natural salt, I think real salt is hard to beat. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I agree with that. That uh, I apologize for that. Um, that I was getting a phone call. I'm sorry. Um, the um, about the local salt deal, and I like how that you didn't run down what other people are doing. You just ask what are you just have those three questions to ask, and let the let the consumer be the one who decides. You know who they want to give their dollars to, and that's that's one thing with Chronically Human podcast. We are definitely laissez-faire capitalists. We believe in the free market. We believe in, uh, you know, peaceful trading around the world. But at the same time, if you can get that product, why import something that you already have within your borders that you can benefit from? Yeah, and I think we're, we're on the same page there. And, and Redmond, you know, we haven't talked a lot about Redmond, but our mm -hmm. philosophy, you know, going back to the, the foundation of Redmond, my grandpa and his brother, they built the business originally on this idea of, and as, as cliche as it sounds, with treating people and customers and vendors the way they wanted to be treated. Right. And so that's how we really kind of got started. Um, we've refined that a bit, and now we say that Redmond's about elevating the human experience. And so we try to do that with our employees. If you've been to our website, you'll see a lot of the activities that we do. You know, Redmond is under the belief 
that you spend more time, most people spend more time with their associates and at the office or at the, at the mine than they do with their families. Right. Um, you know, if you're getting up, like, you know, I get up in the morning, spend an hour or two with my kids as we're getting ready for the day. They go to school. I come to work. Um, after school, they've got their activities, you know, lacrosse and track and piano and swimming and the stuff that they do. And, and so by the time we get back together as a family, we've got you know, a couple of hours for dinner, maybe a family game night, and then we're off to bed. Um, and so the actual, you know, face-to-face -face interactions with the, my coworkers is much greater than, than, than my family even. And so we believe that work should be a place that can be your charity. The work can be a place for your, for your gift to society. And that's not to downplay the family at all, just the reality of it. And so we try to create an environment um, that is focused around the idea of elevating the human experience. And so people will come to us and say, oh, you, Redmond is a great place to work. I hear all these stories. It must be family focused. And, and we try not to, we try to be principle focused right. because I think if you're family focused, then you sometimes will let work suffer because of the family. And then versus a more holistic approach, um, one of the ideas we talk about at Redmond is trying to have life be a blend versus life being a balance. Hmm. Um, if you try to balance your time and you want to spend equal amounts of time at work and at home and maybe in community, it's, it's, it doesn't, life doesn't work that way because you might have a week that comes up being chronically, I just love the name chronically human, um, a week comes up and, and maybe there's a family emergency. And so for a whole week, you need to really spend focused on your family and then work would in theory suffer. But if you try to live your life in, in a blend versus a balance, then it's easier to have that give and take where there's some nights that you might stay and work extremely late because of some work responsibilities. And other times you might leave at two o'clock every day during, you know, the state athletic finals. So you can be with your family during that. And so we really try to have this, this more holistic approach, both to work as well as to our associates and, and because it just allows for that blend versus a, a trying to have everything balanced because you know, even with, with your kids, you know, it's hard to spend, if, I don't know if you have, you have kids or no kids. I'm not married. I don't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, if I've, I've got three boys and if I were to try to spend equal amounts of time, like 30 minutes with this one, 30 minutes with this one, 30 minutes with this one, um, consistently, even though that might be quote unquote balanced, it wouldn't be fair and it wouldn't it wouldn't really make sense because there are some times where my oldest son is going to need a lot more than 30 minutes mm -hmm. and my youngest might need a lot less. And I think works the same way and, and our lives the same way. So rather than saying we're a family focused company or we're, you know, something else focused, we try to say we're, we focus on the blend and that's, focus on elevating the human experience. That's a great point about being principle focused because if you're, if you don't have that principle, then then life can come at you very fast and all of a sudden you're drifting away from your principles for expediency. And I think that, you know, having a regimented life, there's certain things where discipline is good, but at the same time you have to be flexible. And it's funny you talk about uh, the blend of life and treating, uh, you know, each situation independently, that it's based upon principles, but things do change and you can't predict really the future. And it's only acting from principle can you really have a guide for when things come up that you don't expect. 
And I think that applies actually to the food industry as well, because we're getting into a more centralized, regimented society where we're getting a lot of top-down information about what we should be doing with our lives. And those one-size-fits-all solutions, they definitely haven't worked for me in my life. And I think a lot of people are drawn to companies like, like yourself, like what you guys are doing, because it's more focused on individuals. It's more focused on individuals taking responsibility for their health and wellness and also responsibility for how you treat others in the workplace and at home. Yeah, you know, um, that really resonates well. We, another thing that we talk about is putting yourself in the place of most potential. Um, now, these aren't our ideas. These are ideas we picked up from great books and other speakers over the years. Um, DeWitt Jones is a big, um, we, we just love a lot of the work that DeWitt Jones, he was a National Geographic photographer and has uh, a series of videos and talking about a lot of these principles. But the idea of putting yourself in the place of most potential is, I think fits really well with the idea of chronically human. Um, because when you get up in the morning, you know, deciding where is my place of most potential, you know, it might be with your family, it might be at work, it might be in the community, it might be, you know, volunteering with a, another organization. And so, again, we, we try to have our associates and ourselves and our products even designed around that idea of putting our place, putting ourselves in the place of, of most potential. Um, and, and that makes it a little easier to decide you know, should, you know, should I take off work early today? Well, where's my place of, where can I add the most value in the, in life? And that might be staying at the office for an extra hour, or it might be going home, or it might be, you know, going and volunteering at the, you know, the local community organization that, that you're passionate about, so. Now, are you guys still family owned? Is your grandfather still involved? Yeah, great question. So yes, we are still family owned. Um, you know, as the company grew, my family realized early on that there takes a different personality to grow a business to level X mm -hmm. as it does to level Y. And so in the late 90s, early 2000s, we were starting to feel like the company wasn't growing and, and being able to again, it kind of sounds silly, but bless as many lives as possible through growth. Mm -hmm. And so we were still growing, but not at the rate that, you know, we were previous to that. And so we sat down as a family and thought, what can we do to, again, the place of most potential and have the biggest impact. And we felt that selling the company to one of our employees at the time, who just has a lot of our same values and same ideas, would allow that growth to to take another exponential turn upwards. And so in early 2000, late 90s, early 2000s, we sold my family, um, dad and his brothers and cousins, sold the company to our current CEO. His name's Rep Roberts. And he grew up in the same area, has the same passion, same values, and it really allowed the company to experience um, a lot more growth. You know, sometimes, as I said before, it takes a different personality to to grow a business to say you know, 100 employees to 300 employees or or, you know, or more, mm -hmm. and so at that point, kind of passing that torch on to another family in the community made a lot of sense. And so the other really beautiful thing about that is, and, and maybe your brother can attest to this, is a family business. Um, sometimes you feel compelled or obligated to do things that because you're the business owner, you feel you have to do that maybe isn't a great fit um, for you personally. 
And so there were some roles like that over the years. Some people in the family were doing parts of the business when they really, a good example is my uncle, actually a cousin, and he loves driving loaders and he loves loading trucks. Um, and as a business owner, sometimes you feel like you shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing more management stuff. Mm-hmm. And so with the sale of the company, he said, you know what? I really want to just load, you know, play in the loader and load trucks and run the mill. And my dad is another example. My dad um, loves customer service. He just loves working with customers, talking to customers. He can be on the phone for three hours. You know, it doesn't doesn't bother him at all. But as a as a business owner, sometimes he felt like he had to be more involved in the office management and HR stuff, which really would make him miserable. He could he did it did a fine job, but it wasn't didn't fill his cup, like you know customer service does. And so in that sale, he was able to say, look, you know. I have done some of the office management stuff and HR stuff, but I really, I just love to spend time with the customers on the phone. And so with that transition, it made it lots easier for those in the family that were still wanting to be involved to kind of scale back and do just the parts that they loved, um, which again allowed the business to excel. You know, something that we have found, if we have two projects and and one is an an A project um, and another one, let's say, is a C project. And then you have two people, and I would much rather have somebody that's got an A level of passion working on a C level project than somebody working with a you know C level passion on an A level project. Um, and and so as we have grown, um, there's a book Good to Great, um, and in the book Good to Great, the idea is you know what are these companies that have have been good and then they were able to become great. Um, an amazing book. And one of the principles of that is he, the author talks about having a bus and the first decision is, hey, we've got a bus. We need to make sure that everybody's on the right bus. And if, and if the bus is going you know, to Florida and there's a few people that wanna go to Hawaii, you know, we need to get them off the bus as fast as possible. They might be great people, mm-hmm. they might be you know amazing friends, but if if the bus is going you know to Hawaii, we need to get those off that don't want to be there. And then once you get everybody on the bus, then you need to make sure everybody's in the right seat. Um, and that's another beautiful thing about Redmond now is we've, we've grown. We started out as a basic salt company, but now we've grown and we have a natural food store where we do raw milk and we have natural you know, beef. Um, we have a fence and, and outdoor living space company. And so as the companies have grown, it really allows people to change seats on the bus a little bit easier. And so rather than you know, having somebody who maybe is in the wrong seat, Instead of having them have to leave the bus, we can find them a new seat. And that might be moving from the agricultural team, um, which focuses on products for, for natural dairies and farmers and, and, you know, um, and equine, you know, the equine industry. Maybe it's moving there to our food salt division or maybe from the food salt division to our natural food stores. We've got four health food stores here in Utah that we do um, kind of a, a boutique um, natural food store. Okay. Or we do um, house-made kombucha, and you know re- we carry our products there as well—the the, the salt and the clay and the toothpaste products that we have, but but also other great clean natural products. So it's it's just been fun to see the company change over the years. We still have that same um, small company feel and the same small company values, but as the company has grown and has different business units, it's really allowed people to play to their strengths and work in a division and within a role 
that allows them to really excel. And so if your listeners want to learn more about Redmond, um, if you go to Redmond Inc., redmondinc.com, um, there's some fun videos that talk a little bit about our history and our story. I think my dad is on one of them. Um, so it's kind of fun to see him. I think there's uh, just a lot of fun videos, shows some of our leadership retreats that we take uh, for associates and their spouses to come each year. And then also a little bit about the different business units. And so they can kind of see some of the different products that we have. And 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 we can talk more if you have questions about products, but um, I like to talk about the, the culture and the company experience. And then sure, definitely. Um, and the products... That's a lot of us to do that. Exactly. And, and I think there was one video that I saw. I'm not sure if it was your father or not talking about the idea that profits are not a bad word. They're a means to an end. And I think that a lot of times people um, demonize businesses or business owners for making a profit. But at the same time, profit is what allows you that margin. That's what allows you to really treat human beings like human beings. And one of the employees um, in that video, it really struck me. He said that, you know, we're treated as individuals who have a lot to share. And we feel like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And I think that's what everybody is so desperately trying to find in this world. Yeah. Um, and, and that video particularly, I think, is, is done really well. Um, and it's not, you know, it's kind of funny over the years, we'll have, um, you know, partners or, you know, vendors, customers will come out and join us for one of our leadership events. And, and at our leadership events, it's a lot different. You know, a lot of companies, the leadership events include everybody from a certain level, you know, up, you know, in the organization where if you join us with one of our leadership events, everybody, everybody, everybody's there, you know, from, you know, somebody on the warehouse floor to the CEO and, and you walk into our offices and it's a very open office feel. In fact, um, I'm in a, in a conference room right here, right now, but um, if you walked into our offices, you wouldn't be able to see, you wouldn't know who's the CEO, who's the CFO, who's customer service, because um, everybody is on an open floor. It looks like a bit of a boiler room sometimes, but uh, yeah, there's, there's not this, um, I mean, obviously there's, there's, we have team leaders and we have, you know, business unit leaders, but it doesn't feel as hierarchical that, that you might find in some organizations. That's and great. we really need a lot of a way to, to kind of make it, you know, um, there's, there's a, there's a book called, uh, it, it's on, I can't think of the name of the, of the book, but, um, Margaret, I can't even think of it. <laughs> it's on chaos theory, uh, okay. chaos theory in business. Hmm. Um, and it's this really neat, um, idea that, um, you know, if you look at a beehive, I think I used to keep bees. I've, I've got out of beekeeping, but I used to keep bees and, and they're really fun creatures to watch because there's a queen bee, but the queen bee's not bossing people around. Mm-hmm. Um, the queen, the queen's job is just to, um, lay eggs actually to sustain the hive. Right. Um, and then the bees themselves assign themselves different roles. And so as a bee is young, it will, um, transport food to the larva. And as it gets older, then it will start to guard the front door. And as it gets older, then it starts to um, guard the outside of the hive. And then it starts to be a gatherer bees. And then um, it probably gets hit by a Mack truck at some point. <laughs> um, but bees, when you open up the hive, it looks like utter chaos. There's just bees all over. And, but they're all, if you told the bees that what they were doing was chaotic, they would probably be offended. Um, and it, it's a lot more fluid 
Um, and so that's why, again, titles at Redmond are a, a little bit harder to lock down because if you're really playing to your strengths and putting yourself in the place of most potential, that role is going to be somewhat fluid. And, and generally, if, we, if a team at Redmond hires a new team member, rather than having this person come in with a, a set list of you will do X, Y, Z every, you know, that's your particular role, oftentimes the team will sit down together, they'll put up all of the, the roles that the team's responsible for on the board, and then say, okay, what things do you like to do? What things do you not like to do? And let's shuffle the deck. Um, because oftentimes there might be a job that somebody utterly hates. They think this is the worst job ever. Um, you know, maybe talking on the phone, you know, maybe somebody just thinks there's nothing worse than being stuck on the phone for three hours, explaining to a farmer how to use Redmond products to get the most out of their natural dairy. Um, that might be, that might be terrible for somebody, but yet my dad loves that and he would do that every day. But if you ask him to do something else that somebody else might really love, to him that's draining. And so one of the things we really try to do is find, find you know, be really open, be really vulnerable, um, and share the things that fill your cup. Now that doesn't mean to say that there's not parts of everybody's job that is no fun. Right. Um, we all have those things. But if we can play to our strengths most of the time, you know, that gives us the courage, it gives us the energy to then do those other things that maybe are, are less fun. Um, and so, you know, it's, Redmond is not overly utopian. You know, we, we don't have this idea that, you know, there won't be anything that ever, you know, goes wrong because it's still a place to work. Sure. Um, in fact, um, the CEO, his name's Rhett Roberts, that's who we sold the company two years ago. He feels, he's involved in the interview process and he feels that his role at Redmond, one of his important roles, is to talk people out of coming. Oh, wow. I like that. Um, and because, you know, here locally, Redmond is known as a, a very nice place to work, a very, you know, community player. You know, he's involved in a lot of community events. And so it's quite visible. And then if you happen to live next to a Redmond associate, oftentimes they won't shut up about how cool it is to work at Redmond. And, and so because of that, we have a lot of people, um, we don't have a real hard time finding applicants um, when we're looking for to fill a position. Um, but because of, of the way it might look from the outside, somebody coming in might have this idea that, hey, you know, Redmond is this, you know, place where I can just, you know, show up. I don't have to. So they, there's sometimes um, yeah, um, discipline. Yeah, discipline yeah. and responsibility. Right. And and sometimes people will look at Redmond and say, well, results must not matter. I mean, you guys um, take people on trips and, and employees can come and go. And, and my neighbor is always, you know, they say always. In reality, it's not always. But their neighbor might, you know, be able to attend more events with their kids than maybe they're able to. And so it, from the outside looking in, it looks like it's like results don't matter. And we'll be involved in some other like CEO type groups and people will say, you know, this is unrealistic. Um, you know, you're in manufacturing. Manufacturing doesn't have the margins that, you know, software technology companies do. Um, and so it's it's really intentional how we invest in in these activities and in the human experience because we actually feel it does give us a good return mm -hmm. if we do that. And so, like you said it's before, it's not that results don't matter. In fact, 
because of that, results matter even more. Right. Because if we didn't have accountability, didn't have responsibility, and, and didn't have some clear expectations um, of putting your place, putting yourself in the place of most potential and, and giving your strengths most of the time and, and really contributing and really making a difference, well, then the model starts, starts to fall apart. Um, because we wouldn't have the returns, we wouldn't have the profitability that would allow us then to continue to invest in elevating the human experience, which really is is what we try to do. It's it's not just a, a tagline on the website. Um, and I think as people come, they really are impressed that that while we Redmond is as genuine as it, as as the videos make it look like we are, um, and I I really don't think that the videos are overselling. You know they're not you know cut and spliced to to paint a rosier picture than than is here. Um, it's just that we really value that belief in elevating the human experience. Um, and at the end of the day, we, we try to bring all the decisions back to that. We 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 are a company. We make mistakes. Sure. Um, we fall short of that ideal. But that's that's really what we strive or you know, focus to to maintain. And I think that's important too to uh, have that as the core because it seems like when businesses grow no matter how hard they try to get away from that core um, impetus of growth that they become a magnification of what they started as and that it's important to to clearly define what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable you know the way that you conduct not only your personal life but definitely your business life and I think that does reflect as you grow it kind of ripples out almost in a fractal nature that uh, you know those principles you know if a ship starts um, veering off course it's almost impossible to turn it back if it's not based upon you know the principles that you first started with you know we, we love the ship analogy uh, Stephen Covey in his uh, um, you know seven habits and in his follow-up books uh, Third alternative, and but he he talks about how difficult that ship is to move, but to move that ship off course as the percentage of the mass, it's that trim tab, that little teeny. It's not even the rudder. It's this little teeny trim tab that's off the tip of the rudder, that changes, which then throws the rudder, which then moves the ship. And so by focusing on those those little principles or seemingly, you know, small things that are under the iceberg that really allows us to impact in a much bigger way those larger principles. And so as we spend time with associates doing trainings and doing um, you know, leadership events, we really try to focus on not the, not the visible part of the iceberg or the visible part of the culture we're trying to change because you know, if you try to change the iceberg by whacking at the top of it, <laughs> you, you might feel like far. you're really busy, yeah. but you're not gonna have much of a change um, and, and that ship analogy is very true. And so I think one of the things that Redmond will need to do as we continue to grow is maintain the focus on the trim tab mm -hmm. because trying to do big initiatives or trying to, to move that ship in a large way all at once, if it drifts too far off course, becomes much more difficult as the organization gets larger, unless you focus on the trim tab, those little teeny principles, respectively, small sure. principles. Um, and, you know, putting people in their place of most potential and helping people, you know, be vulnerable and do the hard work so they know what is their biggest contribution. Mm -hmm. And if that biggest contribution they discover is outside of Redmond, boy, we are, we're 
happy to help them make that transition. Or if their biggest contribution is within Redmond, then we're happy to, to do that too. And as a, on a more you know, daily basis, if that biggest contribution is spending time with their father or mother or, or friend, then we realize that if we're always really focused on results and putting ourselves in the place of most potential, focusing on our strengths and unique gifts, mm -hmm. as, as overly utopian as that sounds, wouldn't that be an amazing place to live? Like if everybody, um, you know, were really able to give their best contribution mm -hmm. to life, um, rather than having a teacher who feels stuck as a teacher or having um, a chemist who really wants to be a teacher, um, you know, something that, and, and this is an analogy I use sometimes, but Bill Gates and Mother Teresa are both very different people. And I'm sure, you know, I don't know their whole life and maybe my analogy falls apart. So <laughs> give me some credit there. But, okay. you know, from a 10,000, 5,000, 50,000 foot level, you know, um, I am really glad that, that Mother Teresa impacted life like she did. And I'm equally glad that Bill Gates impacted life as he does because – so I had a, a child that was born very premature and ended up in the hospital and was hooked up to a computer. And so some people might say, well, Bill Gates, he's um, earned all this money and maybe he his life – you know, he, his life isn't near as meaningful as somebody uh, – as maybe a Mother Teresa who gave all of her life to the, to the poor. Um, and I am really glad – that there was a personal computer that technology has changed as far as it has to allow my son to be hooked up to a computer um, in the hospital because that that saved his life equally as much as maybe feeding a poor um, orphan saved that infant's life. And so I think oftentimes we might look at Bill Gates and say, well, you know, maybe he should have been more like Mother Teresa. Mm -hmm. Or we might look at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and say, wow, look at all this money he's donated, which I think that's wonderful. But I think in his case, his bigger contribution was probably to the computer technology that has allowed hospitals and you know transportation and, and all of these impacts that he gave that I am really glad he chose to focus his passion where he could add the most value as opposed to walking away from his passion for computers and maybe spending time in the rainforest in South America. And I'm equally glad that Mother Teresa and, and a botanist who spent their entire life studying plants in South America did that because, you know, maybe they didn't donate billions of dollars to a foundation, but their passion for this particular plant has impacted the world way more than if that botanist were trying to be more like Mother Teresa or Mother Teresa was trying to run a computer company or the computer company was trying to be a botanist. And, and so I think if we can all do the hard work and really discover where is my place of most potential, what is my unique contribution, and that might not be at work. Maybe work is a means to go out and, and you know, contribute music. And maybe you know, your music passion on the side is what gives you the energy to, to get through the day at work. And, right. and so we're not, again, we're not overly utopian in our, our philosophy and realize that there is, you know, sometimes maybe you can't transition to your to your ideal job, or maybe it's going to take a few years to do that. But philosophically, I love that idea that, you know, help Mother Teresa be a better Mother Teresa, help Bill Gates be a better, you know, version of Bill Gates, and not try to cookie cutter them or to switch them. That's exactly what we believe here at Chronically Human. We believe in individual freedom and 
that each person is uh, responsible for their own personal fulfillment and for reaching their own potential and that the more freedom we have to explore and experiment, the more people can find that place of most purpose and that can contribute the most. And that if that means running a business, then the profit within that business, Bill Gates would have zero to give away if he didn't run profitable businesses. And we wouldn't be able to talk today because Skype is a Microsoft product. And I think that uh, using technology to connect people um, is extremely important. And it's also a way that we can connect back to the earth as well, because with your products, that's basically what you guys do. It's a simple, clean product line that helps people make those little decisions on a day-to-day -day basis that can have huge potential to impact their lives later down the road. Yeah, um, and, and when I watched, I haven't watched all of your episodes, but when you reached out, and I, first off, I, I loved the name. I was very intrigued with the name of the podcast. Listen to it a couple episodes, and I thought, yeah, this guy, um, he would be fun to talk to. So I'm really glad you have us on today. If you're ever out in Utah, love to meet in person, love to show you around, uh, take you down and show you the mine. In the meantime, we do have some fun videos that uh, your your viewers or your listeners can jump online and and uh, you see a video that'll take you down underground, and you kind of see the actual ancient seabed. It's I say it's kind of like walking into the bowels of the earth because you can go underground and, and lick this crystalline uh, wall that has been buried for millennia. Um, and, you know, this is when dinosaurs are walking the earth and you're the first person to be right touching that, you know, particular salt crystal from, you know, since the Jurassic era when it was laid down. It just is kind of just a neat experience to be surrounded in this cavern of, of salt crystals. And in addition to the salt, like I said, we, Redmond has a lot of other, you know, animal and uh, human products. And, and the website does a great job, you know, talking about that. So, again, I don't know if you have any more, you know, questions or notes. But, boy, it's been a great uh, to be on your program. I've well, enjoyed you. the conversation. Yeah, I definitely really enjoyed the conversation, Daryl. I just have one quick question because I think a lot of people, when they hear about, um, like, a real salt product, they might be concerned about either lead or iodine. Um, that, that they're not getting the, the they'll, they're getting too much of one and not enough of the other. Um, I know on your website you do address that, but for folks who are just listening who might be concerned, I believe it's Prop 65, the California deal where they, they label stuff um, like crazy. Uh, and also about table salt, which was originally had iodine added for a specific reason uh, about people being concerned about just using your product 100% and not you know using a regular table salt. Great question. So uh, the Prop 65 is a whole uh, big conversation in and of itself. Um, on the salt, there's not a Prop 65 statement on the salt. We do have a bentonite clay product, which okay. is an ancient volcanic ash that's um, used for facials. It's used for body wraps. It's used for uh, toothpaste. Really amazing product. And because that product is from the earth, it's a clay-based um, well, it's just clay. There is a little bit of naturally occurring heavy metals in that product, but it's actually less than your typical, you know, approved because we live on the planet Earth and lead is the 15th most abundant element on Earth. Right. It's going to be in everything. Now, that's a lot different than a lead based paint or leaded gasoline or, you know, things like that. Um, but having a little background level, you know, there's there's lead levels in in you know sunflower seeds and kale and spinach and I mean just because it's grown from the earth, and so because that product is just earth, 
the, the Redmond clay product and the, we call it earth paste, it's a natural toothpaste, will have that Prop 65 statement on it. Okay. The salt, where it's from the seabed, it doesn't have that in there. Um, it's uh, because it's uh, an ancient crystallized water uh, versus the um, earth, which is the volcanic ash. So the the other question though, and we talk more about that on our website, you can sure. jump on redmondlife.com. So redmondinc.com is the parent company, mm-hmm. redmond.life is the food products. Okay. That's where they can see all of the food products we have, redmond.life. Gotcha. So iodine though, so iodine is really important. And for a couple of reasons, if you do a, a study of a cancerous prostate or cancerous breast tissue or thyroid, those will all be deficient in iodine. Um, iodine deficiency also is most well known for goiter that affects the thyroid. Um, and in the Midwest during World War One, so World War One breaks out and that's when they start the draft. Um, when they started drafting people in, in during World War One, if they were coming out of the Midwest, they had a higher level of goiter, and you can't be drafted. You can't serve in the military if you had goiter. And so some of the smart people got together and said, "What are we going to do to solve this goiter issue?" Um, and they said, "Well, it's linked to an iodine deficiency." And they said, "Okay, what ideas do we have to get rid of iodine deficiency? What can we do to encourage people to eat more iodine?" And I don't know all the discussions that were had at that point. I would hope somebody would have said, hey, let's have a campaign to eat more kelp right. and more sea fish. Or dairy. Um, and dairy, you know, raw, you know, yeah, kelp and all of these, you know, mozzarella cheese. Uh, right. Those are all good sources of iodine. Um, somebody along the way said, hey, let's add iodine to flour. Everybody eats flour. And so if we we're enriching it already, so if we're enriching the flour, if we put iodine with the flour, that would – kind of can compel or force people to eat more iodine. Um, and that they tried that and it didn't work as well as they were hoping. I don't know if it was because of the stability or just what. Um, they could have chose to try to add it to water. You know, a lot of cities will add fluoride to water. Um, that's a whole different discussion. But right. there is, um, but that's why they added it, to encourage consumption. Um, and so somebody said, hey, let's add iodine to salt. Salt's you have to eat salt to live. If we add iodine to salt, then it would force people to eat more iodine and we could solve the goiter problem. So that was the regulation. And at that point they said, okay, we're going to force you to add iodine to salt, to the salt manufacturers. And if you don't add it to your salt product, you have to say this salt does not supply iodide a necessary nutrient. Mm -hmm. Even if your salt contains natural levels of iodine, if you don't add it, you have to say this salt does not contain iodine necessary nutrient. So real salt, if you pull up the elemental analysis, um, and actually on the back of the product, we used to say, we used to list the iodine levels, but we had to take that off because of uh, labeling regulation. And even though, so if we look back here, um, you probably won't be able to see that here, but this right on the front, it says this salt does not supply iodine necessary nutrient, even though we know it has it in it. And that's just because of the labeling, labeling laws. So real salt does contain natural levels of iodine, but it's only about 10%. So if you have a quarter teaspoon of iodized salt, that will have generally, don't quote me on this, but about 45 to 50% of your RDA of iodine in that quarter teaspoon versus ours is about 10%. Mm. So it's quite a bit less, but it's naturally occurring. Now, Dr. David Brownstein wrote a book called your bo- um, his book was called Salt Your Way to Health, Dr. David Brownstein, excellent book. And then he wrote a follow-up to that called Iodine, Why You Need It, Why You Can't Live Without It. 
and excellent book. And that's where most of this information I'm telling you comes from. And in this study, they did a analysis and they said, okay, we're going to see how bioavailable iodine in salt is. And what they found was it was less than 10%. So once you consume, say, this much iodine in iodized salt, your body is only using um, you know, less than 10% of the iodine that's there because it's just not it's, – it's bound as such, so the body can't absorb it. It's not bioavailable. It's not bioavailable, yeah. And so the point for this whole conversation is everybody, probably every listener or a very high percentage of your listeners are going to be iodine deficient. A few factors, reasons for that. One, iodine is a halogen. The other halogens are bromine, chlorine, fluoride, um, and iodine. And so those, the thyroid loves halogens, and a larger halogen will get pushed out of the way by a smaller halogen. The reason that works, let's say I had a big bucket of, of steel marbles, and, I, and some are little teeny and some are really big, and I put a magnet in there, and I swirl it around, and I pull the magnet out. When I do that, the little marbles are going to push the big marbles out of the way because they're going to squeeze in and fill in those spots. And so as you have those other halogen exposure, bromine, chlorine, fluoride, those can block iodine reception. So that's a problem. Um, and so in Dr. Brownstein's book, he says, first thing is try to avoid these other halogens. You know, try to, you know, chlorine, you'll get a, a water filter so you're not getting all the city chlorine. chlorine. Um, you know, you can get a shower filter to help block some of that chlorine absorption. Um, fluoride, you know, reverse osmosis will remove that from your water supply if, if you're on a well or on a city that doesn't you know, put fluoride. New car smell, that new car smell is bromide. It's a fire retardant. And, and so try to reduce your exposure to those, uh, Dr. Brownstein suggests, helps iodine absorption. Hmm. Then the other thing is go out of your way to find foods rich in iodine. We talked about a lot of those. But even those, with those two things, there's probably many people that still just can't get enough iodine. Our, our, our soils are depleted. You know, we don't have the nutrient, nutrient value in our, our wheat or our you know, lettuce or whatever. Generally, isn't as nutrient-dense as it was years ago before the – we started to industrialize, you know, repetitive farming in the same area. And so there are some good iodine supplements. And so if somebody's concerned about their iodine levels, um, salt is not a good way to supplement your iodine. Right. Um, back to World War One, it did actually solve the issue. Um, and if you're eating enough copious amounts of salt with iodine, it can help. Um, in my opinion, nature has it right. And I would much rather, instead of taking a vitamin C tablet, I would much rather eat a bunch of citrus. Um, if I'm, you know, now that's not to say I'm, I am, I have no problems. If I was iron deficient, I would have no problems going to the doctor and either getting an IV or getting a, even a, a pill that would help me not die from natremia, you know, from, or from iodine deficiency. But at the same time, long term, if I can go out of my way to eat more foods that are rich in iodine or rich in vitamin A or rich in vitamin C, I would prefer to go that route if possible, but I'm not opposed to, to med medicine either. I've got a brother who's an MD, and you know, I, I have no problems with medicine. Um, but I think um, our food can also be our medicine generally um, for a lot of us. And maybe some people, maybe they don't have the ability to metabolize certain enzymes or certain vitamins, and so they need to use you know supplements and, and pharmaceuticals, which I, again, don't have a problem with. Um, but to the iodine point, um, there are natural foods and natural salts that have iodine in it. 
Um, a quarter teaspoon is not going to be enough to fulfill your recommended daily allowance, um, but it was never meant to be. Salt was never meant to be a source of iodine. There's some in there, um, but there are better foods that are better sources of iodine. So focusing on those while using a natural salt that has some small amounts of natural iodine is, a, in my opinion, a much uh, healthier approach. Well, that's, that's great, great information because a lot of times I don't think we even uh, consider what's in our food or consider the, uh, the ingredients or where it comes from until we have a problem. And so like I, I, I'm glad that you talked about not having a problem with these other solutions that can help. But at the same time, if we can prevent some of these issues and from needing these artificial solutions or these solutions that are expensive and uh, could be prevented from even being needed, I think that's, that's definitely a great point. And I think with your other product line as well with the, uh, the toothpaste and the, um, the facial cleanser and the other personal products, because people have no idea what's actually in their toothpaste that they're using on a daily basis or what they wash their face with because there's a lot of chemicals and a lot of stuff in those and those products we use every day that I think are having a detrimental impact on people's health. Yeah, especially over time, you know, bioaccumulation is a real thing. Um, and so, you know, with our toothpaste, we like to focus and our salt, you know, we like to focus on what's not in it rather than what's in it. Um, and if you look at the ingredient label on a typical salt, maybe you go to your cupboard today and not your cupboard, but, you know, somebody else's cupboard, they pull out a shaker. They look at the back of it. You know, it's not unrealistic to have six or eight ingredients in your salt. Um, now, salt is hygroscopic. Hygroscopic is a big word that means uh, sucks water out of the air. Hmm. So if I had a salt crystal here in my hand um, and I lived in Florida on a humid day, that salt would start to sweat. It doesn't really sweat, it's actually sucking water out of the air. And if I sit there long enough, I'll have a pool of water in my hand underneath that salt crystal because it works that well. And so because of that, if you have a granulated salt product that's you know nice and small crystals, when that attracts moisture, that moisture will then cause it to clump. And so over time, and, and if the salt is already naturally damp because it's coming from a current ocean or it's been processed into really unique crystals, it'll clump even worse. And so, you know, years ago, salt manufacturers realized a couple of things. One, that there were other minerals with salt. In fact, the Great Salt Lake, this has sodium chloride in it, but it also has magnesium and potassium and calcium. And so mineral companies can take out the magnesium, turn it back into metal through electrolysis and make a lot of money selling magnesium um, from a liquid salt source. Or you can take out the potassium chloride and sell the calcium chloride, and, and then you can still sell the salt, the sodium chloride. And so by monetizing other parts of that process, it would be you know similar to a, a, an orange. You know, So we have an orange, beautiful orange, and we know that an orange has vitamin C in it. Well, if I were to take all the vitamin C out of the orange and then sell it to a vitamin company, and I sell you the orange that's left over, it's not the orange that nature created. And salt companies can do that. They can take out potassium, magnesium, calcium, some of these other electrolytes that work to offset the sodium. And then another factor is because salt is hygroscopic, it sucks water out of the air, by adding some antiperspirant type chemicals, some anti-moisture, anti-caking chemicals, the salt, which is designed to attract moisture, repels moisture. And if you look at the ingredient deck, you'll see things like yellow prussiate of soda, sodium, um, sodium silico aluminate, 
it's kind of similar to the antiperspirant uh, aluminum chemical. You'll see things like uh, uh, propylene glycol 400, mm. which is uh, sounds a lot like antifreeze. It's a little bit different, but perhaps that's why propylene glycol sounds familiar. Uh, propylene glycol 400 is a, an anti-caking agent. And so by adding these chemicals to the salt, they can make the salt, instead of attract moisture, which is what it does in nature, they can make the salt repel moisture. And that's why the old saying, when it rains, it pours. And the umbrella on salt is because when it's rainy and humid outside, the salt will still pour out of your shaker because you've added chemicals to it to repel moisture. I never that's where knew that. It originally came from. How about that? I never knew that. That's very interesting. And so, and, and these are in my, and they're in small amounts, right? They're not huge amounts, but they're chemicals that are designed to repel moisture. And I wouldn't be 100% sure, but I would guess if you took two licks of an antiperspirant stick every morning, um, your body's going to react in some less than ideal way because of the way your body is designed to repel, you know, moisture, salt and water are two, and oxygen are probably the three biggest, most important parts of your body. Um, outside of a spiritual discussion, we're, we're water and salt. Um, and that's really water and minerals is really all that we are. We're like 42 pounds of mineral. I'm 150 pounds. And so if I'm about 72% water. I'm 42 pounds of mineral. And then I'm 108 pounds of water. And that's really, that's really what I am outside of a spiritual discussion. Mm -hmm. And so if you start impact taking chemicals in your body that interact with moisture or repel moisture or impact the, the minerals of our body and throw the minerals out of balance, those electrolytes out of balance or throw the water out of balance, there, there's a whole lot of problems that start creeping in. And so a lot of people have heard that salt's bad for them. Mm -hmm. But yet, if you go back to, you know, any, if you go back to the hospital even, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to give you an IV of saline solution, which is salt water. Right. But it's not salt water that has propylene glycol. It's not salt water that has sodium silico aluminate added. It's not salt water. It's just pure natural mineral, you know, water and salt. Um, which is what our bodies are made of. So anyway, I probably have gone on too long on that question, but not at all. And you can wow. see, I love salt and I love talking about it. We could talk about salt and minerals for hours. Your listeners would probably be bored to tears, but the longer we talk about salt and minerals, the more excited I get. <laughs> well, I, th no, I think it's very important because salt is vital to human health. And that's one thing that most people like myself until recently never thought about really about what's in the salt and what it actually does within the body. Like you talked about it being the, the back in the seventies, I think there was a commission on food recommendations. They had six that came out for people. And one of them was that low salt's the way to go, low fat's the way to go, high carb and low cholesterol. And I can't remember the other ones, but a lot of that has been proven wrong since then. Maybe not in the studies funded by the government, but by personal experimentation people have found a lot of people low carb keto and even carnivore diets are becoming extremely popular but for the way that they affect people's health are you seeing especially in the keto low carb carnivore world a lot of people gravitating towards your products and your company yeah you know both both in the keto side as well as in the the complete opposite in the you know the vegetarian vegan side and the reason for that is you know because salt is essential for life if we go back to um, every civilization was founded around access to the salt deposits because it was so essential for life animals need salt humans need salt 
we, we all need salt. So every civilization started with access to salt deposits. If you fast forward into the times of Rome, Roman soldiers were often paid a salary or they were paid in salt. And the term, is a man worth his salt? Or is a person worth their salt? Was the idea that you're getting paid in salt and if you're not working hard enough to earn the salt you're getting, then you weren't worth your salt. So that idea is, that's where that, that phrase comes from, is a man worth his salt um, because you were paid in salt. If you go to any religious book, uh, old religious books, they talk about salt being um, important. And if the salt has been destroyed, it's lost its savor. And they talk about how um, you know, salt was used as a gift. It was used as a way to, they would, if somebody bought a new home, they would bring salt over to help dispel, you know, whatever. And, and so salt through time has always been this essential part of life. Trade routes were established around salt. Um, salt was, was used as salary, it was used as currency. It was so essential. Um, and it was actually important for not only for health, but it was important for food preservation. Hmm. And so if you don't have a refrigerator, you need salt to preserve your food because it sucks moisture out of meat or you can use it for kimchi and sauerkraut and pickles and, and fermented vegetables. And so if you go back to the before the refrigerator, which was early 18, late 1700s, um, you, people would have eaten more salt because everything they would have eaten outside of the summertime um, would have been preserved in some fashion in salt. Pickles, sauerkraut, kimchi, vegetables, fermented foods, all would have used salt as an important ingredient. And, you know, jerkies and meat preservation equally important. And so as people have moved away from processed foods that are heavy laden in processed salt, I mean, that's a big challenge with salty foods is if you, if, if, the, if the salty food was made with a natural balancing salt, it would be a lot different than that food that's made with all kinds of trans fats and chemicals and and then you throw in a processed salt on top of that, you're just adding fuel to the fire. Um, but if you go back to a natural diet and you be, the, be that keto, um, and so yes, the keto movement is really big on, on real salt for a lot of the reasons we've talked about because you know, oftentimes if somebody's craving sugar, what they're really craving is salt and the body's just come to associate that with sugar. Um, and so you know, for a pre-workout or for an athlete, um, you know, the salt is really essential. And then to, to break down food in the stomach, your body uses hydrochloric acid. So when somebody goes onto a low salt diet, one of the first things they experience generally is indigestion. Oftentimes that, you know, if, if you, your body, you don't eat hydrochloric acid. Um, your body creates it by using the ingredients that you give it. And hydrochloric acid is HCl, um, which we have your hydrogen and your chloride. And so if you cut down on your chlorides and you're not getting those, your body has a much tougher time digesting the food that it needs because it's using – you're not drinking chlorine and you're not – you know, you know hydrogen is coming from water. But your body is making hydrochloric acid with the ingredients that you give it. And so if you're on a very – you know, maybe if, if you've moved more to the ward, the vegetarian vegan side, you're eating a lot of vegetables, well, you equally need – because you're not getting the, the sodium that's coming from the red meat – you know, you need, you can't eat enough celery to get enough salt to, to meet that need. Um, which is why when you go to the hospital, they don't give you celery to eat, they give you an IV of sodium chloride because your body needs to balance. And in fact, if you're hooked up to an IV, you really can't overdose on sodium in an IV form. I mean, you might have two or three times the daily recommended allowance of sodium come through an IV, but if it's balanced with water and the other electrolytes that are usually there on the IV bags, you know, you might need a catheter, but you're not going to overdose 
on sodium if it's in that 0.9% saline solution um, because it balances the body. And so as someone is changing their diet, um, especially if they're moving from processed foods and they're going to go more natural, you know, whatever that is, you know, the, the, you know, the keto or the complete, um, what was the other, um, the carnivore. The yeah. Carnivore? Uh, yeah. Paleo carnivore. Yeah, paleo carnivore. Um, you know, salt is essential and you really can't get much more than caveman than using a natural mineral salt that was laid down long before the dinosaurs or while the dinosaurs were here. So, so yes, the answer is, you know, we are finding more and more people finding as they're changing their life, changing their diet, trying to make that lifestyle choice to get off some of the processed foods, get back to the way, you know, you know, your grandmother may have cooked or go back to where our great grandmothers may have cooked, um, or should have cooked, <laughs> um, will we will need to find a good quality salt for that um, salt adds flavor to foods it also acts as a preservative um, for if you're making your own you know preserved foods you know kimchi sauerkraut maybe you're making some jerky or whatever salt's essential for that but then just adding flavor to life um, is is what Redmond really does because if you taste it side by side it does taste substantially different um, as opposed to a processed um, demineralized additive rich salt that's a that's a great point about it's not just the the keto carnivore paleo world which that's that's where i associate with personally but it's also people who are vegetarians or vegan i think anybody who's getting away from the industrialized processed foods uh, can yeah. definitely benefit from what you guys are offering now where's the best place uh daryl for people to find what you guys are offering yeah, so for for the for the real salt and for the human products, it's Redmond, R-E-D-M-O-N-D, Redmond. There's three red mounds behind the town of Redmond. Okay. That's where the name comes from. There's town of Redmond. There's three red mounds. So it's R-E-D-M-O-N-D, Redmond, uh, Redmond.life. Okay. So that is where they can find information about real salt. They can find information about the Redmond clay, which is great for facials, bee stings, poultices, also find information about our toothpaste. Uh, we also have uh, a new electrolyte um, supplement that we're doing with our real salt. We're adding some other um, electrolytes to it, as well as one with just the real salt. Um, and so that'll be on that site. So that's a really good spot for the human side of the business to learn more about the company philosophy and who we are and what we try to live up to. That would be Redmond Inc. INC Redmond Inc.com. And that has a more general page that has links to all of the other uh, subsidiaries, mm -hmm. um, but it uh, is a good spot to start. Fantastic. And just on a personal note, you said you were working on that electrolyte solution type deal. I, I personally, we talked about this a little bit before we started that I'd been sick for 30 odd years. I had tons of surgeries, tons of hospital stays. And so I dehydrate super fast. So I'm always drinking water. But the, the other side of it is the electrolyte side. And, you know, I won't drink Gatorade because that stuff to me is poison. Personally, I think it is with all the stuff they put into yeah. it. What is that electrolyte product and do you have it available now? Uh, yeah, great question. So two things. So this one that we're re it's actually re we're reintroducing it. We had it for a while and then we put it on hold because we were just busy with other stuff. But that's actually a capsule. Um, it's a veggie cap that has real salt in it. And then we have one that's going to have real salt with some other electrolytes in it. So that's a capsule to, you know, as I, I mountain bike, I run, I ski. And so those 
easy to take while you're going. Now, for an electrolyte drink, this is a free. This is you don't have to buy this one. Um, so my kids are pretty active, you know, lacrosse and and track and soccer. Um, I'm pretty active. I think the best if the best electrolyte drink, and you might have your own recipe that you like to use. But what I suggest people do is take a quart of water, one quart, a quarter teaspoon of real salt, a squeeze of lemon. And if you're not opposed to it, then I'll put a little bit of honey in there. I know some people like honey, some people don't. But uh, a quart, a quarter teaspoon of real salt, a squeeze of lemon, and a little bit of honey, I think is the best uh, sport drink you'll ever find. Um, it's super tasty. The lemon is refreshing. A little bit of honey gives you the energy burst. And then if you just drink lots and lots of water without the minerals, you're going to just flush more minerals out of your body. Right. Um, and so by having that sports drink, make it yourself, you know, you can do it for pennies, you know, pennies per gallon, um, if that even, um, by putting a quarter teaspoon of real salt, it has the sodium, it also has small amounts of calcium, potassium, magnesium, over 60 minerals that occur naturally with the salt, um, with the lemon, a little bit of honey to taste. And that's my, that's my suggestion or my free tip for the day is make your own sports drink. Um, and there's, there's my recipe. That's fantastic, and we'll make a little clip of that as well. So we'll put that online of just that part along with the, the rest of the uh, conversation. A lot of great information today, Daryl. I really appreciate you sharing behind the scenes and the story of your company and about what you guys are doing to help empower individuals to live their best life, whether it's within your company or whether it's with your vendors and also with your customers. So I really appreciate your time today and all the information. And I appreciate everybody for listening today. And check out redmond.life and then redmondinc.com and realsalt.com. Check out their products and consider picking them up because it's good to know not only where your food is grown, but also where your salt comes from. So thank you today and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks for having me.